Well, as you can see, we are still here, um, meaning my wife and I, um, our baby is due on Friday, this upcoming Friday on the 9th. This baby has not come yet. So um, with our first two kids, well, after, after our first one, we asked Dr. Bevson, we said, what's, what's a good amount of time to wait till you have your second child? And she said, three years. We said, okay. Thinking three years, they are less likely to kill each other. Um, they're, they're less likely to, to I mean, just a, a good amount of time in between the two. And so we heard her say three years. And the first time with Jonathan, um, we found out that, that Tasha was pregnant on Tasha's best friend's birthday. And we know that because Tasha forgot to call her best friend on her birthday because we were excited to find out. Um, three years later, on her best friend's birthday, she says to me, don't let me forget to call Megan. And I said, okay. And we went to the West House for, for dinner, Mike and Brenda, and Mike made some incredible beef stroganoff. Um, it was incredible. He makes incredible food, and all of his food's incredible, but the beef stroganoff was incredibly incredible. And... <laughs> And when they would get up, Tasha would take some of her beef stroganoff and stick it on my plate. And I was like, I mean, I was happy about it, but I thought, that's rude. What, why don't you like the beef stroganoff? And I just ate. I just kept eating and eating. And afterwards, we're walking out. I'm like, you didn't like the beef stroganoff? It was amazing. She said, I just have an all-too-familiar feeling. I said, okay. So sure enough, we found out that night that she was pregnant again with the same due date um, of September 27th. And with both kids, they were both born on September 26th. Um, same day she found out, same due date, born on the same day. Kids born September 26th, Tasha born September 28th, and my birthday, September 30th. Every other day, very convenient. <laughs> the title of our sermon this morning is Perfect Timing. With this baby, we just don't know. It, the due date is January 9th. Messed up our whole plan of keeping all the baby. I mean, if, if we had another one on September 26th, we would for sure make a TV show of some sort. <laughs> I think tomorrow would be a good day because the baby's birthday would then be like 1515. Five, How cool is that? That would be good. Um, we have a little contest going on, I think, at a website called baby hunch, where you're able to like, make guesses of like, the color of hair, the day the baby's born, the length of the baby, the, the, the weight of the baby, the color of the eyes, and you get points for different things. And, um, and so there, there's been some different people that have gone on and made their guesses, and, and you, you may have a hunch as far as... Some of you, it's usually women that are here. Um, you'll come, I knew that it was a girl. Or I knew that it was a boy. You have like a 50-50 chance. But we don't know. I mean, I tried my hardest to cheat when the ultrasound came up, and I'm like, I don't know, you know. Um, but you may have a hunch. I, I did my best to say, like, okay, I think it's going to be a boy. I think it's going to come on January 8th, because she's always one day before, at least the last two. Um, and so I made my guesses. Um, 
you can guess brown hair, blonde hair. We have one of each. Blonde hair kid, blonde or brown hair little boy. In case you don't know, my, my wife right here, blonde hair. My mom, blonde hair. Um, my dad, black hair. It's one of those things where I, I, you know, people see me with little Natalie, blonde hair, light eyes, little hazel eyes, and they just don't know for when she has come. They look and they. Some people say like she is a white you, you know, and she has like some Asian, like that twenty five percent Japanese features in her. Um. One lady, when I was walking out of Kohl's with my bags of stuff and my little girl, just saw me walking towards my car and says, where do I get one of you to take care of my kids? I said, like, a, a husband? Um, So we don't know. Baby could be blonde. Baby could have brown hair. We just don't know. But you may have a hunch, and you're welcome to make some guesses as to what you think the baby is. But with God, no such thing as a hunch with God. God knows. He knows all things. He knows the color of hair, the weight, the day that you're going to be born, the size of the baby, color eyes. He knows the birthmarks and he knows every detail of our lives all together. Not only does he know those things, but he knows all things all together. We can, we can make a plan. Um, we can try our hardest as people to make a plan, but our plans don't always work out. We could try our hardest to make a plan, another September 26th. But that's not our choice. God makes a plan, though, and it always works out. It always functions the way in which he is going to work to bring himself the most glory in the end. When we look at God, it's incredible to just think of a God who is not only all-powerful, but he knows all things, control of all things. And I believe we see that in our text before us this morning. Let's read John chapter 7, beginning of verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, because it hates, but it hates me because I testify of it that, it work, that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. 
Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. When we look at our text, we see that Christ has a plan. In this, you see that there's timing to the things that he's going to do. He says things like, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. My time has not yet come. In verse 8, he goes on to say, for my time has not yet fully come. In, in Scripture, we see that there was a plan. Book of Galatians in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There was a time when the, when the fullness of the time had got, come, God sent forth his Son. When the fullness of the time had come, that exact time in which God desired for Christ to come and to be born, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. There's a plan. We look and we see in, in Acts 17, verse 26, where God tells us, it tells us here, and, and he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Going on from there to tell us that, that we might grope for him and find him. He, he determines our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. I read something like that and I just think he, he has a plan. He, he determines these things. Our pre-appointed times. He knows all of these things. In Isaiah 37 verse 26, he says, Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? From ancient times. Before any of this was ever created, he knew it. There's a plan. We look and, and think of, of my own life and looking to see God's plan versus my plan. Things in which I thought would go a certain direction and yet it didn't go that direction. And watching the way in, God, in which God worked. And even in, in my own sin, taking things in which... I had fallen and, and using it to mold me and to shape me and to change the way that I think and to change my heart and to, to work to, to cause me to have incredible affections towards him. Some of the most painful things that I've ever experienced in this life are things in which God used to draw me closer and closer unto him. The way in which he worked to, to bring about today, where we're at today, our church today, the the story of, of Reverence Bible Church and just watching God's hand and how he works so mightily to bring us to this place. I look at the last 10 years or nine and a half years and see there's a plan. There was a plan. There was a plan to bring you here. There was a plan to bring us to this place. God worked in just incredible ways that, that were miraculous ways to bring us here. I look at the way in which God worked in, in my life with my wife and how we met and, and the circumstances there and um, the way in which we, we 
started to, to like each other. Um, the story goes that I mean, we were friends. I knew her. Um, but in her senior year of college, she asked me, I want to do a paper. I have to do my senior paper, but I don't want it to be on accounting or business or anything like that. Do you have any ideas? And I said, how about Sudan? That's interesting. And you have you know, Arabs in the north, Muslims, blacks, Christians in the south, war taking place, peace. Trying to, they're trying to make peace. You have genocide, famine, all of these things. And she's like, well, I don't know anything about that. You'd have to help me. God's good providence on my account. Like he just worked. I happened to have been there many times. I knew a lot about it. We got an A. We got married. You look and there's a... <laughs> there was a plan. There was a plan. But with God, we look and we see that, that, that his timing is just incredible. Not only is, is there a plan, but there's incredible detail to the plan. When you start looking at the days in, in which God is working, um, up until the, the time of Christ's birth, the time of, of his ministry, all that took place, as we look at our text this morning, we see that there is a plan, not only of when he's going to be crucified, but specifically of, of when is he going to go up to this feast? What is the timing in which he's going to leave Galilee and go up to this place. When you start looking at the details, it's, it's incredible thinking of, it's down to like hours, minutes. The days in which God is going to work, there's a plan. One of the most incredible things that I've, I've studied in Scripture um, comes from Daniel chapter 9, where where in verse 25, it says, um, or in, in verse 24, it talks about these, these 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of, of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up, up vision and prophecy and, and to anoint the most holy. In verse 25, it goes on and says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, the wall even in, in troublesome times. And the, there was um, a man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson who was the chief of the, the criminal investigation department for Scotland Yard from 1888 to 1896. And he researched this in a 300-page book entitled The Coming Prince, where he goes through and talks about this particular text. Going through and, and looking at how the word week in, in this particular section means seven or 77s. It doesn't identify days. It, it, it doesn't identify weeks. It doesn't identify months. It doesn't identify years. It just means 77s, that there's 77s that would take place. And he, he goes from there to say, from Nehemiah 2, chapter 1, we know that Artaxerxes um, gave the command to restore and build Jerusalem on March 14th of 445 B.C. He goes from there to say Palm Sunday came on April 6, 32 A.D. And he goes through and he, he talks about how 
there's these seven weeks and 62 weeks that equals 69 weeks and with the 70th week coming in the, the, in the tribulation and that this 69 weeks or 69 seven-year periods would result in 483 years. And then he goes from there to look and say, okay, so today our year is 365 days. But at the time of Daniel, they used a 360-day calendar. Um, it, that's made evident in Genesis 7 and, and, and Genesis 8. It goes through and, and, and it's very clear that, that that's the amount of time that they used. And um, you go from there to, to look and and he does the math. He goes through and he works it out and um, says that there's this, this 70-year period. And, and it comes to a place where he says it has to end up being 173,880 days from the time that, that Artaxerxes had made the command. 173,880 days. And you go from that particular day on 445, March 14th of 445 B.C., and you go through and you look at all of the days that comes to the point of Palm Sunday. And he goes through and says, okay, well, we have a problem. We, we're missing this many days at the end. And then goes through and, and, and talks about how, to, to me this part is, is, is really interesting, where... There's three too many leap years um, for every four centuries. So our, our year is, is um, 10 minutes and 48 seconds shorter than 365 days. So that's how it works out. So on September 3rd, um, I'm sorry, in, in 1752, that was corrected, called the Gregorian Reform. So they declared the 3rd of September to be the 14th of September, and that was known as the Gregor- Gregorian Reform that took place in 1752. And so he goes through and deducts these three days and goes through and does it, and it brings you exactly to 173,880 days from the time that Artaxerxes commanded to restore and rebuild Jerusalem till Palm Sunday. Like the exact number of days taking into account leap years, taking into account the extra 10 minutes and 48 seconds, all of it. He goes through and does it and says, it comes out exactly to this many days. And you start looking at it and you look and say, there's a plan. There is a plan. When he says, I'm going to be here and the time is fulfilled for me to come, there was a plan for that day. When he says that this is when the triumphal entry is going to take place, there is a plan. When he says that, that he's going to go to a cross, the cross, there is a plan. The exact day. When you look at the Passover that took place and why they instituted the Passover and why it took place on that day. And you go to the crucifixion and you see the Passover taking place on the exact same day where Christ comes. And he is the Passover lamb. There is a plan. I mean, there comes to a, a place for all of us where we have to look at it and look at scripture as a whole. And just see God is very much in control. He's very much in control. There is a plan down to the day of all of the events that would take place until Christ would come and become the payment for our sins. You start looking at it, and to me, I just am in awe of God. He has a plan. Not only does he have a plan for when he would come and when he would be on that colt, the foal of the donkey, in which he prophesied about, 
and when he would die, and when he would rise again three days later. But he has a plan for us. He has a plan to work in our lives. He has a plan and determines our pre-appointed times and our boundaries that we might grow for him and find him. He had a plan. So when we look at our text this morning, we will see that plan unfold. In John chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. He walked in Galilee. He's there in Galilee and not in Judea because the Jews wanted to kill him and it was not the plan for them to kill him at that time. So he's in Galilee. From John chapter 6 to John chapter 7, there's about six months that go by. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about that six-month period in great detail. John does not. Um, You'll go through and, and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you'll see miracle after miracle that take place. You'll see the transfiguration that takes place. You'll see all kinds of things in which Christ did in that duration of that six-month period. But in John, we go from chapter 6 to chapter 7, and there's a six-month period that goes by, and what he says is after these things. Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. In John chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. That's what's taking place. The Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long event to celebrate how God provided for his people during their time in the wilderness. And the people would set up tents, and they would live in the tents. There would be tents on top of their, their roofs. There would be tents throughout the streets. There was detail that was given in Leviticus as far as how the tents were to be built, what they were to be like. They were to be able to see through the top of the tent to be able to see the stars. And you, you look, and it, this is just an incredibly festive event for all the people there. And um, one in which... They were commanded to, to go up and to celebrate. So the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. In verse 3 it says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it tells us, For even his brothers did not believe in him. So here's Jesus' brothers. Jesus had younger brothers. Matthew 13, 55 talks about that as well as other passages, but just in, to give you a proof text of that, Matthew thirteen fifty five says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph or Joseph, Simon and Judas or Jude? He had brothers. So the brothers are there and, and they're saying, Depart from here. Go into Judea, that the disciples also may see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to them. His brothers are there. Go. Why are you here in Galilee? This isn't good for your PR. This is not good. You need to go to where the movers and the shakers are. Go to Jerusalem. You need to get up there. Incredible verse here where it says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Even his brothers did not believe in him. I find this interesting. I I, I think that if you were to ask his brothers, do you believe in him? I would probably venture to say they'd say, well, yeah, we believe in him. 
I mean, we're, we're telling him to go to Jerusalem, aren't we? We're telling him to go because if he wants to, to, to have a big name, if he wants to do anything, he can't do these things in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. Um, if he's doing all these miracles, we're seeing all these miracles, show yourself to the world. Go, go to the world. Make it so they all get to see what you're doing. But the text says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. They're trying to promote him. But they want him to be king. They want him to, to overtake the Romans. They want him to do what they want him to do. They, they're probably in a place of saying, like, we're brothers. If he takes over for the Romans and he is king, where will that put us? They're looking at it and looking at it totally from a worldly perspective. They may say, well, yeah, well, no, we believe. I mean, look, we see these miracles. We've, we've watched him from birth. He's never said anything bad ever. Mom always liked him more. You know, like, what do you do? Like, he, he's never sinned ever against us. And we've seen him do incredible things. Go make yourself known. But there was no desire to, to follow him. There was no desire to be in a place of not only are you to be made king, but you are the king of kings and you're the Lord of lords and you're the Messiah. You're the one who is to come. You're the one in whom we are to worship. His brother's are telling him what to do. Go do this. I mean, that's the first sign that you look and see, like, they had no idea who he was, really. They're telling him what to do. You look in. They're not concerned about his will or his safety or his timing. They just want him to do miracles so the whole world could see him, so, they could grow, so that he could grow in popularity. The unbelief of Christ's brothers is a fulfillment of prophecy as well. In, in Psalm 69, verse 8, it says, I've, come, I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. It's prophesied that they would be in unbelief. But later, his brothers believed, didn't they? We see that after the resurrection and his ascension in Acts 1.14, where it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. His brothers were there. We see James, the just, to go on to write the epistle of James. We see Jude, his brother, to go on to write the epistle of Jude. They come to believe later on, but right now, they're in a place of, go, show yourself, do your miracles. But the Holy Spirit writes, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Just stopping for a moment, I think that it's important for all of us to think about this. There can be a knowledge of who Christ is without truly believing in him. There could be a place of saying, like, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah. I believe in him. Came to earth, born in a manger. I sing the songs. But might the Holy Spirit say, yeah, you didn't believe in him. Reason being is you don't believe in him to be the one who is God himself, who's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the one who, who died on the cross for your sins, took, took the penalty 
that you deserve for all eternity upon himself so that you can spend eternity with him in heaven. The one who's the perfect lamb of God that was slain for you to where all of your hope and your salvation is not in yourself or your good works, but in Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, who became the lamb of God, who died on that cross, who says, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But that belief is more than just like, well, yeah, I believe. I read in one commentary that someone would, who would come and, and question their salvation, the author said, I would ask them, well, do you love him perfectly? And the response would be, no. They wish that you loved him perfectly. Are you in a place where, do you love him Do you love him at all? And if the person responds, yes, I love him. I love love him. I I want to please him, but I fail so miserably. But I love him. I worship him. I desire to sing praises to him. I'm so thankful for my salvation. I love him. He's saying, have great confidence that you're a believer. Because nobody loves him apart from the Holy Spirit doing that work in their heart in regeneration. You're not going to love him like that. So if you're here this morning, you look and say, like, I believe in him. Part of the evidence of my belief in him is that I, I love him. Not just, like, oh, yeah, of course I love him. But I, I love him to where I want to I please him. I want to live for him. I, I hate my sin, and I... I want it to be out of my life because I just, I just want to please him. You look and you see at this particular point, his brothers, they wanted him to be promoted, but they didn't believe in him. Go from here to, to verse 6 where it says, And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Jesus' brothers are saying to him, show yourself to the world. And yet Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come. Um, In this particular text, there's a question that comes up as far as, what is he talking about as far as my time has not yet come? Is he talking about my time has not yet come to, to go to the cross? My time has not yet come so that I'd show myself to the world? I mean, you, you, you see that in... In, in the last days in which Christ will appear to, to all people. And it tells us in Matthew 24 that, that they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Or, or Revelation 1-7 where it says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Is he talking about that as far as when everybody sees him? More than likely not, more than likely, although there's a time for every aspect of his life, more than likely this is talking about is when is he going to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. He's saying to them, my time has not yet come. You're always ready. You can go. There's nothing stopping you. My time has not yet come. There's a detail as far as like, I cannot yet go 
up to the Feast of Tabernacles. My time has not yet come. I can't do that yet. He goes on to explain this to them where he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You're unbelievers. You can do what you want to do. You're not bound by anything as far as pertaining to the glory of God. There's no kingdom-mindedness there with you. But for me, there is a time. There is a time in which I will go up to Jerusalem. There is a time in which I'll go up to this Feast of Tabernacles. There's a time in which this is going to happen. There's purpose there for him. For you, you can go. I find it sad to look and think of his brothers where the brothers are there with Christ, with their creator, with the one in whom all of the feasts, all of the days are pointing towards. And they're looking at saying, okay, well, we're going to go to the feast. We're going. They're there with Jesus to where wouldn't it have been better just to stay at his feet to go with him? But Jesus is saying, you can go whenever, and they didn't care. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. We see this also in John 3.19 where it says, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Um, the world hated him. When you think of Christ and you think of, of his life, people were not indifferent to him. Either they loved him, or you'll see that they hated him. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just, he's crazy. You hear them saying, give us Barabbas. Kill him. I mean, you look and here he's healing people and doing all kinds of miracles, but in the hearts of the people, they hate him. They hate him. Jesus is saying, the world doesn't hate you. You're just like them. You act just like the world. There's no confronting their sin. But it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You see that here with, with Jesus, he's going and specifically pointing out the sins that are there and the need of repentance. And the religious leaders and all those that are in control are just looking at him and saying, we hate you. We hate that you point these things out. We hate your holiness. We hate that you're saying these things. And they're in their minds just thinking, how can we kill him? We just want to kill him. And Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come. You go up to the feast, verse 8. I'm not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. He needed to go up to the feast. In Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16, it, it commands given three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, at the feast of tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord 
your God, which he has given you. He had to go. A command was given in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. And Jesus came that he might fulfill all of the law, obey all of the law. He had to go. But he went in his timing. Everybody else had already gone. And the text tells us that when the brothers had already gone up, Jesus later went up to the feast. Maybe went a back route. Maybe went in in such a way that everybody else had already arrived. And here he's coming with just a few and he's, he's walking up. Maybe he walked when it was dark. Maybe he came, but it tells us that he came up not openly, but as it were, in secret. Why? Because his time had not yet come also to go to the cross and they wanted to kill him. In John 7, verse 11, it says, The Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? Where is he? They're not, they're not looking for him because they desire to worship him. When the Jews are looking for him, they're saying, Where is he? Because there is a plan. They desire to put him to death. Holy Spirit inspired for John to write, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. There's a lot of talk that's going on in Jerusalem as far as, where is he? I think he's good. No, he's deceiving the people. There's talk that's going on, and yet Jesus knows all that's taking place. Texas, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. They're afraid. Who is the Lord to you? Who is Christ to you? C.S. Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is he to you? You can't just say, he's good. I think he's good. You can't just say, I think he's a good teacher. Talk good things. He didn't leave that as an option to you. Who is he to you? Is he one in, in whom you wish him dead? Glad that he died? Do you just shut him up for a fool? Or do you call him Lord and God? There's no other option. Either he is not the Messiah. When it talks about the days and the exact days and all the prophecies that point towards him. Either he's not the Messiah. Or he is. Can't say he's just a good teacher. He's one or the other. For me, I look at it and fully convinced. I'm fully convinced that he is my Lord and he's my God. I look and I see in Scripture a plan. I look and I see a God who has worked throughout history 
to show us his character and to make for himself his own people. Forgiven of their sins. Cleansed from them. Covered with his righteousness. I don't know where you're at this morning. But I believe it's just absolutely, incredibly convincing that he is the Messiah. We could go through and look at hundreds of prophecies giving incredible detail of the life of Christ, where he would be born, where he would die, where he would be crucified. Um, Incredible detail of looking at things from where Abraham offered up Isaac to the exact same place in which Jesus was crucified. Details that are given from the time that Adam fell in the garden as far as from the seed of the woman, the serpent's head being crushed, but Jesus' heel being bruised. The whole sacrificial system and the lamb that had to be perfect and without blemish and how it had to be killed and not one bone being broken and Jesus being on the cross and not one bone being broken. Incredible detail of the crucifixion given as far as details given of his hands pierced and all that would take place hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever even invented known of, done in any way, shape, or form. Incredible details as I had gone on, and as I had said earlier, coming down to even the day in which he would be there for the triumphal entry. Go through and look at the exact number of days. To me, I look at it and see, without a doubt, Messiah, Lord and God. And with that comes a heart that desires to love him, to worship him, to please him, to live for him, to obey him. This morning, we're going to partake in communion. And the joyful thing as we approach communion is knowing that today can be the day of salvation for you. The Bible says, don't partake in an unworthy manner. Um, for unbelievers, time of communion is not for you. It's for believers. But to think that on this very day, today could be the day of salvation for you. You came here and just came thinking, like, oh, I was going to go to church. They made me go to church. They asked me to go to church. I should go. But today could be the pre-appointed day that God had determined that you might grope for him and find him. How radical is that? A day planned from eternity in which God knew that today would be the day in which you would be saved. And to think that that comes not by cleaning up your life and then coming to him, but to think that that comes by placing your hope, your faith, for your salvation in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that you would take this time, if you're an unbeliever, just to cry out to the Lord for salvation. For us as believers... May this be just an incredible time of worshiping the one who had a plan, the one that fulfilled the plan 
and the one that has redeemed us for himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for our time in your word this morning. A text that may be looked at as far as just traveling plans of the Lord. But we see here that there is a plan, a detailed plan in which you were coming to fulfill all that you had been called to fulfill. We praise you for that. Thank you for finishing the work and going to the cross. Thank you for rising again on the third day. Thank you for the promise and the assurance that you will come back and we will see you and we will come with you in glory. Thank you for saving us, your people. And thank you for your kindness even to be here and to work so mightily in the heart of someone who came in here as an unbeliever that they might have faith as they hear your word this morning and as your Holy Spirit works in their hearts to bring them unto salvation. May today be a day of salvation for someone who's sitting here in our church. I pray that the rest of our service would just be filled with joyful praise and worship from those who have been redeemed, purchased by the precious blood of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.